Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Welcome to SACPA, everybody. Nice to see a huge crowd for our guest speaker. Uh, just before I introduce him, I will um, just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, please turn your cell phones off. That's uh, reminding myself as well. And for anyone new here, you will see a basket at each table. Please uh, pay for the lunch is free, but you have to pay to listen to Andrew. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'd like to thank a few entities and people before we get started. The University of Lethbridge uh, for their support, both financial and spreading the good word. Also to Shaw TV, who tape our session every week and broadcast it uh, generously throughout the week. I think it's Sunday at 4.30 for sure, but also other times. And Country Kids and Catering, who is doing a wonderful job of uh, providing us with lunch, uh, no matter what the numbers are. I also like to thank the Lethbridge Herald. They faithfully come every week and spread the word to people who can't be here. Um, so now I'm going to introduce Andrew Nikiforik. Uh, the title of today's talk is Petrostates, Oil and the New Servitude. Uh, it relates to slavery, of course. And uh, Andrew has been writing about oil and gas industry for many, many years. And uh, most of you have probably read some of his provocative uh, writing, and uh, I think he doesn't get, doesn't get uh, a lot of complaints from people in the know because they generally know that uh, Andrew is, knows what he's talking about. So without further ado, I uh, welcome Andrew to come up and uh, do his thing. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's always a, a great pleasure to, to come to, to Lethbridge um, for, for your meetings. I think this is my third or fourth meeting here uh, with the council, and, uh, and each one is, uh, is, is an honor and a privilege. And um, today I'm going to talk about just one aspect of my latest book, Energy of Slaves, which is really about how the institution of slavery served as a model for and, and, and uh, influenced our habits about energy consumption. 
And so I, 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 I talk about masters and slaves. I talk about how energy, high energy consumption, particularly with oil, has changed everything. And as most of you know, has changed everything in your lifetime. Today, I just want to talk about how it changes the politics of states. And, um, and let's just tackle that one, one subject for 30 minutes here. All right. So what is a petro-state? A petro-state is a jurisdiction, a country, um, or a province that is heavily dependent on the revenue from one resource, and that resource being oil. And places that become petro-states all share very, very similar characteristics. So coming from Alberta, we can go to Texas, and we can recognize Texans as having many similarities with us as also being a petro-state. The same with Louisiana, the same with Alaska, the same with Wyoming. Um, so what we need to remember first is that oil is the world's number one most lucrative commodity and most volatile commodity in the marketplace. Two to five trillion dollars worth of oil are traded every year. It accounts for, in terms of revenue, more trade than any other resource on the planet. This is the number one resource, the master resource. If you are producing this product and exporting this product, then you are become part of the fraternity of petro-states. Right? For the last 10 to 15 years, Canada has become a major oil exporter to the United States. That puts us in the league of, of folks like Venezuela, Nigeria, uh, Saudi Arabia, Russia, Kazakhstan. These are among the uh, Norway... Um, Iraq, Iran, Libya, we're part of that league now. As I mentioned, that 3 to $5 trillion a year industry, oil accounts for 10% of global GDP. It accounts, and when it be becomes, costs more than 10% of your household budget, then everything falls apart. You park your car, you start walking, or you've lost your job, or you can't pay your mortgage. What happens in petrostates is that quite essentially they behave like plantation economies, where everything is all about the oil. There's nothing else. It becomes a monoculture. And every other part of the economy is ignored. Every other political uh, uh, part of life is ignored oil becomes the dominant focus of all discussion. All right, so there are about three or four things that are characteristic of all petro-states. First, the first off is political extremism. The United States, I have up here, because the United States was the world's first petro-state. It pioneered oil and still remains a petro-state. The other thing about petro-states is they stop taxing their citizens, and when they stop taxing their citizens and running on oil revenue, well, you've got the situation where there is no representation without taxation. Then they get stupid. They've got all this oil money. They, they think that sitting on a pile of hydrocarbons somehow makes you smarter than your neighbor, and they become incompetent and negligent. Then they start having fantasies. 
about, oh, Canada's going to become an energy superpower. We're going to sell all of our bitumen to the Communist Party of China and its two major-owned, state-owned oil companies, and this is going to make us an energy superpower as opposed to an energy supermarket. And then there always comes this issue of lack of transparency and secrecy in almost all petro-states. Last and, and foremost, or and, and really important here, is that the citizens of petro-states because so much is being provided by the oil and gas industry, get fat and lazy. And they also stop engaging in politics. So a few words about the U.S. oil. As a pioneer, you know, oil was discovered in Pennsylvania, 1850s, wasn't the first place, but in the United States became a huge boom and set the United States off in a different direction as very much a nation that would be dependent as dependent on oil as the British Empire was dependent on coal for its empire. So the U.S. becomes hooked on oil, first as a source of illumination, then as a source of fuel for, for vehicles, and then it takes this whole culture and spreads it around the world. So, you know, Standard Oil goes off to Venezuela, um, and a, a consortium of companies go off to Saudi Arabia in the 1930s and are making deals, uh, and soon the oil culture moves all around the world. Um, uh, Buckminster Fuller observes in 1940 that the United States has become a, a rather extraordinary place. And why? Because Americans have more access to energy and power than any other people on the planet as a function of, of, of cheap oil. So he calculates that in 1810, there were one million Americans. They had on average one million slaves. And, um, and then he calculates, okay, with oil, has dramatically changed all of this. So by the 1940s, each and every American has at their disposal 39 energy slaves per person, largely in the form of combustion engines or steam engines doing work for Americans, doing the heavy lifting. And then he, he says, you know, what makes the United States remarkable is that it has this concentration of invisible energy slaves and it has this extraordinary power. And then you can see the infrastructure that is developed then, this kind of plantation economy on a, on a major scale where everything is about oil. And this is just uh, the pipeline coverage in the United States for oil uh, and natural gas and other hazardous liquids or other hy hazardous hydrocarbons. So then you have the American experience. It's all about mobility, all about migration, all about movement as a function of having so many energy slaves that can move you around. Um, Here's one of uh, the great uh, 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 Americans saying, fossil fuel energy feeds machines, making us master of an army of mechanical slaves. The humblest American enjoys the services of more slaves than were once owned by the richest nobles. And uh, this uh, is this fellow, uh, Rick Hover, um, who was uh, the commander of the United States nuclear submarines. Now, the United States is, as an oil pioneer and a petro-state, is in a bit of trouble. Oil production peaked there, became dependent on Middle Eastern oil, and has been importing uh, every three years a trillion dollars worth of oil, which is contributing to its debt load. And you can forget about the Bakken. The Bakken is an interesting play. It is not going to make the United States energy dependent. So along comes this American who starts studying oil and what it does to oil states. Her name is Terry Lynn Carl, and she goes to Venezuela, and Venezuelans say, don't study OPEC, study what oil does to 
government. So she did. One of the first things she, she did, and, and it was to look at the work of Harold Innes, the great Canadian historian who came up with the idea in uh, the 1920s that countries that become dependent on one staple, whether it be furs or trees or diamonds or oil, will develop very differently and will become extraordinarily – their politics, their economy, and their culture will reflect this dependence on one thing. And he said – and his staple theory was a defense against the violent fluctuations which are characteristics of exploitation without afterthought of one thing. So the first thing about petrostates, the 20 percent factor, to be a petrostate, the government has to get at least 20 percent of its revenue from oil and gas. All right? So Louisiana, 30 to 40 percent of its revenue comes from oil and gas. Alaska. 90% of its revenue comes from oil and gas. Another petrostate. Nigeria, uh, 77%. Alberta, our fluctuation goes from 18 to 30% depending on, of course, the price of natural gas or the price of oil. And it goes up and down like a yo-yo. But that, the government is dependent on up to 30% of its revenue now coming from this resource to run our affairs. Now, there's problems with this because energy prices go up and down. So here we look at sources of revenue for other provinces. Alberta is the big black mark. Look at the violent fluctuations in source of revenue for the government to run on uh, because we have the lowest taxes, so we are the most dependent on these resource revenues. The other provinces have this more normal trajectory. You know, it's a bit wavy. It's like a, an ocean, but it's, you don't see all these tsunamis on, on uh, uh, coming up. So, Terry Carl, what does she say? Petrostates rely on an unsustainable development trajectory fueled by an exhaustible resource, and the very returns produced by this resource form an implacable barrier to change. Sound like Alberta? You bet. So here's the petrostate. The first thing they do, they lower taxes. They want you to make, make you feel comfortable about living in a petrostate. Wyoming? Virtually no taxes. Texas, virtually no sales tax. Louisiana, no sales tax. Saudi Arabia, no sales tax. Alaska, no sales tax. Alberta, no sales tax. Why? Because we're running on oil money. And the problem with that model is that governments represent who fund them. If you're not funding the government, then your government is going to represent its chief funder, which in this case is the oil and gas companies. The next, all right, what do they do then? Well, all of these, they catch the Dutch disease. Their currency becomes attached to the world's most volatile commodity, oil, goes up and down like a yo-yo, and that makes a real problem for other sectors in the economy, whether it's agricultural exporters, manufacturers, and so on. They get hammered by these price fluctuations what do petrostates do? They abandon statecraft. They've got so much money, they think they don't have to think anymore, just spend. And that's what the Alberta government has done. They concentrate power. So they're usually in power for a long time. You know, Alberta, one-party state, 41 years. Hello. Fund extremism. Talk a bit about that. You see growing inequality, or what Terry Lynn calls the paradox of plenty, as we're going to experience in the next month as the government cuts public services to the bone because it is so negligent and incompetent. 
And then you begin to find that nobody wants to work in a petrostate, so you start bringing in all the temporary workers for all uh, um, the jobs we don't want to do. We've got no sales tax in this province. Ontario has got a sales tax. British Columbia brings it. This is per capita what it brings in. Saskatchewan, Alberta, no. So we're in that typical petrostate mode. Could we have a sales tax? Absolutely. Now, here's the oil and gas industry. This is imperial oil talking, saying the oil sands are funding hospitals, schools, social programming. So then how can you be against any form of oil and gas development if it is funding every single one of your public services? Even though I don't think there's a person in this room who voted to have oil companies pay for their hospital bills or their roads or their schools or whoever voted for that form of corporate servitude. Here we have uh, Deloitte in a recent report on the problem with Petra State saying, you know, so what happens then when you weaken taxation and you rely on resource revenue? It weakens the fiscal social contract between citizens and state leaders as the normally taxpaying public exerts less scrutiny of how tax revenues are raised and spent. What happens to voter participation? You know, and it keeps on going down. Sixty percent of the people in this province no longer bother voting. You know, that's shameful. But when taxation is absent, populations tend to be politically inactive, relatively obedient, and surprisingly loyal. That's Terry Lynn Carl again. After studying Venezuela, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, Texas, Norway, all of these petro-states. And then you begin to see, you know, the, some of the, 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 the incredible thing about petrostates. Here we have uh, Lauren Gibson, the chief electrical officer, who noticed uh, a lot of extraordinary bad things happening in our, uh, um, during our elections. And what's the government's response? Not an intelligent response. You don't investigate any of this stuff. You fire the guy. All right? Then we find the Dutch disease. All right? And here's a great explanation for it, and it's working right here in Alberta throughout the province as we become increasingly more and more dependent on one place, Fort McMurray, and bitumen production, and that's going to be our single and only engine driving us forward. Um, here you can see the, its impact on the country per se. You know, look what's, what, what's, what's moving here. There's petroleum, there's autos in terms of, of, of export trade. Then we have this peculiar thing that all petrostates have. They get, they, you know, petromania. Here's a Norwegian journalist talking about this. Oil makes people believe that the desert can turn green, that socialism can be reborn, that wealth can be generated without work, and that there are no limits to where one can go. And so we had Iran talking about establishing a new and great civilization. Uh, we have Canada talking about becoming this bizarre energy superpower by selling our resources on the cheap to China. Uh, we have in Kuwait, where it's 40 degrees outside, you spend a billion dollars building a ski hill to prove to the west of the world that, hey, we've got oil here. You can see it. We're spending it. Uh, go to Saudi Arabia, where they're using oil to desalinate water from the ocean to grow grain in a desert where it would not normally grow. 
Kazakhstan, you know, let's build monuments to oil. Norway built nearly uh, uh, a $600 million opera house. I had no idea the Norwegians were that interested in opera. And then, you know, and what are we doing here? Well, you know, we called, Ralph Klein called this the world's eighth uh, great uh, wonder. And we're digging big holes in the ground, uh, holes that will eventually be the size of Rhode Island by 2035. Now, Petro states, the Democrats ran Texas for 90 years on the basis of the oil money coming in. The PRI ran Mexico for 70 years on the basis of oil money coming in there. They're now back in power in Mexico. The Tories have run this province for 41 years straight on the basis of their manipulation of oil rents and money. So high levels of dependence on oil rents have always tended to reinforce the regime in power. No kidding. And what happens when are, is there only an opportunity for change in a petro state? When the price of oil crashes. So what we saw in North Africa after 2008, when oil went from 140 bucks down to 30 bucks, we saw a massive wave of protests throughout the Middle East and North Africa. There was a window, an opportunity for change, because when the prices fall, everyone sees for an instant how corrupt and incompetent petrostates are. There is no statecraft. There is no fairness. There is no democracy. There is no accountability. There is no true representation. And I would remind you that two political parties appeared in Alberta in 2008, when oil prices crashed in this province, and also when gas prices crashed, and that was the Alberta Party and the Weld Rose Party, and that is no accident. Periods of low oil prices offered the best opportunity for change. High prices closed the window of reform. Political extremism, no stranger to Petro states, Gaddafi in Libya, Sarah Palin, the ever-popular Sarah Palin from Alaska. Um, Margaret Thatcher ruled England for 14 years on the basis of what? On revenue from the North Sea. Did she save a penny? Was she a true conservative? And did she save a penny for future generations? No. Not a cent was saved. She spent it all to fund her political revolution in England, which is what Petro leaders do. Putin, another Petro leader in Russia. I mean, he has consolidated all oil and gas production under his control. George Bush, another petro leader from Texas. We all know about what the Saudis have done with their oil money. They've used it to fund extremism. You say, well, have we done that here in North America? Yes, we have. The big rich from Texas in the 1950s, these were the big oil barons in Texas, all used their money to fund whom? Senator McCarthy from Wisconsin and his communist witch hunts, he was known in the United States as the third senator from Texas. So oil has been used to fund extremism on this continent. Here's an interesting map about, uh, that says a lot about the United States. You've got you know, the red states and you've got the blue states, and we know about this increasing political divide there. It is a reflection of where oil and gas lies. There are the hydrocarbons. There's the political representation. In almost every case except for California, where you have hydrocarbons, you have red states. The blue states are the oil importing states. 
The Koch brothers, another example of a, uh, you know, big oil men in the United States who funded their own political mar- movement, the Tea Party. We have our new example of extremism here. Um, 2011, the oil and gas industry wrote this man a letter, wrote his government saying, you know what, the environmental laws in this country are too tough. Uh, we need to change them. Sure enough, along comes a budget a year later, Budget Bill C-38, Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, ditched Canadian Environmental Protection Act, undercut National Roundtable on the Economy and Environment, killed. It was actually saying something about climate change. Um, Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency, seriously weakened. Kyoto Protocol, gone. Fisheries Act, um, uh, gutted. Energy Board, neutered. And on it goes. We have well-known magazines criticizing our muzzling of scientists, saying it is time for the Canadian government to set its scientists free. That's how well-known our censorship of our federal scientists has become. We've got a problem with carbon emissions. Tar sands now represent 7%. They will soon become 19% by 2020. And what does the Auditor General of Canada say? We haven't got a plan. We've got no plan to deal with this carbon liability. And meanwhile, Harper's doing deals. And who is he doing deals with? He's doing deals with one of the the world's seventh largest oil companies, Sinopec, uh, which is a run by the Communist Party of China. This is a state-owned oil company. This and Sinoc, Sinoc which bought Nexen, and Sinopec is supporting the Northern Gateway Pipeline. The money. Quick, quick note about the money. You're, no one's supposed to talk about money in a Petro state. The Norwegians had this conversation. They have saved their money. They have taken it off the table. They do not run on oil and gas revenue. Their government runs on taxes, including a carbon tax. This is what they have saved for future generations, for their elderly, for their communities, when the day oil runs out. Why have they, did they do that? Because Farouk el Qasim. Uh, an Iraqi petroleum geologist went to Norway just as Norway discovered oil uh, off the North Sea, and um, he had married a Norwegian gal. Um, Their son had cerebral palsy. They went back to Norway to get medical treatment. The Norwegian government soon, you know, was looking around and said, my God, we we know everything about fish. We know lots about hydropower. Uh, We know a lot about shipping, but we know nothing about oil. And within four days, he had been hired by the Norwegian government, and he came up with a plan for them. And the plan was very simple. He said, two things you must follow. Go slow and save the money. And that became the basis for, for why Norway is such a different petrostate than all of the rest. Here's what we've saved to date. Peter Lougheed Peter put us on a different course. He, he influenced the Norwegians. His heritage savings plan was one of the reasons why the Norwegians decided to do their sovereign fund. But they said, you know what, we're going to tighten up some of the loopholes so politicians can't dip in this fund and raid it and use it whenever they feel like it. This will be, our fund will be for future generations. The Alberta Fund has been purely for political expediency. And it is criminal how this fund has been wasted and how we have stopped uh, adding to this fund. 
What about collecting our fair share? Here's Murray Smith, our former energy minister, explaining our program so well in the United States in 2006. The model that has worked so well for us is that the royalty structure for oil sands is we give it away at 1% and share in the risk of these great ventures and great investments. So Norway, companies receive 22% of the net revenues. In Alberta, where we give it away, companies receive 53% of the net revenues. Here's our public share of oil and gas and bitumen wealth. Lougheed's target was 35%. We have not met that target since Lougheed stayed. We are now below 15%. And you need to remember that next month when this government announces that it's going to cut public services across the board because they don't have the courage to raise royalties to a rate that might actually control and slow down the rate of development in the tar sands. We are only collecting 15%. We have given away the farm. Whenever our previous Auditor General pointed this out and said, by the way, guys, you have a target that's closer to 35%, but you're never meeting it. It's always 15% or less that we are capturing. Here's the response from Ron Hicks, a former Deputy Minister, um, to criticize government decisions and even promote alternative policies as contrary to the principles of Alberta's democracy. (laughs) Now, you'd hear that on a Petro State, for sure. What has Canada saved? The federal government makes more money from the tar sands than any other government in corporate taxes. There is no fiscal accountability in this country with oil wealth at this point in time. No sovereign fund, nothing. The Harper government is running on revenue from the tar sands, which explains why they are promoting pipelines and deals with the Chinese and saving nothing for the future. So where do we go? Um, We start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible, and suddenly you are doing the impossible. We all need to go on an energy diet. We can talk about that later. Most importantly, we need to take the money off the table. We need a, a provincial as well as a national strategy for resource wealth, particularly oil. We need to follow what Lougheed advised us to do in 2004. What did he say? Behave like an owner. Collect your fair share. Save for a rainy day. Go slow. One project at a time. Add value. That was a credible program for the tar sands. Not one political party has yet taken up. We need a national debate about pace and scale. We need a national carbon tax. Um, But most of all, here's uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb with a word of advice for all of us, that we become civilized only by knowing what to refrain from doing. And that's something very hard for a petrostate. Anyway, thank you. Well, that should give us food for thought, uh, besides having lunch. Uh, <clears throat> Andrew's books are for sale, and uh, they will be, after the session, he'll be selling books. We'll be selling books out there, and I think he might be able to sign some if, uh, 
if anybody desires a signed book. So we're back at one.